Hello and welcome to the Tez International Podcast, hosted by me, Dan Worth. This edition of the podcast is a special episode that brings you a discussion held between three heavyweights of the education world at the World Education Summit, for which Tez was the media partner. At the event, we spoke with Professor Andy Hargreaves, the Thomas More Brennan Chair in the Lynch School of Education at Boston College, and also the co-founder of the International Centre for Educational Change at Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Cassie Solberg, the Professor of Education Policy at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and the Associate Professor at the National Institute of Education at Nanyang Technological University, Pak T. Nyu. They discussed how they think the education world may change after the pandemic, from exams and assessment metrics to the use of technology in the classroom, and why well-being must remain a central focus of schooling across the globe. All that and much more on this episode of the TES International Podcast. Hi everyone, and thanks for taking part in this. As said, and I really enjoyed that discussion there. And it was there were so many bits that came up throughout that, that could alone have made a whole discussion. And so I, I tried to pull out a little few things that I thought were particularly interesting. And you know, I look at the international schools market as well. So I'm covering some of the things that I think I'm talking to leaders and teachers. That I think were, were very much saying similar things or thinking similar things to what you were outlining there. I think was very interesting. And I think the first thing that was said, which I thought was very interesting, was Passy. You sort of touched on this. Was about this issue of. Um, how do we ensure that we're not just looking at tests and standardization of tests as a sort of the only metric by which we measure educational success? And you seem to be suggesting that, you know, uh, that there's much more to education. Is that something that you think the pandemic and, and the future, there is now more awareness of that, that education is not just about going through a testing regime, getting in a grade at the end of it, and there's an awareness now that it's the socialization, the well-being, the rounded individual that's creating education. Do you do you have confidence that that's going to maintain, or do you think that the old systems will just rush back in and replace, and in two years we'll be back to the same old grind of exams? <laughs> no, not at all. I'm, I'm not confident uh, confident that's going to happen. I'm, I'm sure that there's a there's a lot of awareness. There's a lot of uh, uh, conversations and, and debates about the the role of uh, standardized assessments and testing. And this, this whole question of um, the metrics that should be used for monitoring um, and um, assessing schools, there's there's no no doubt about it. But I do not the, the reason why I do not think that it's going to ever come uh, reality, as we many of us, probably all of us here in the panel, hope is the um, um, it's a little bit what Andy Andy was writing in his piece about the austerity and uh, the the kind of a gloomy world of economics that we will face in, in education practically everywhere. And we all know that when the money is getting short, when there's a kind of a declining uh, declining pockets that we spend in education, then uh, the response is always the, you know, how do we how do we know that, you know, everybody is able to achieve the minimum standards or minimum level. And what I see as a more likely scenario against all these wishes and, and hopes that we have is that there will be new types of metrics um, in you know measuring that the political uh, leaders and the systems uh, um, uh, kind of follow the accountability uh, responsibilities and duties that they have and you, you know even even the Kind of a darker side of the story is that when you have when we don't have a necessary funding for education systems, that's going to happen here in Australia, in Finland, and most parts of the Europe and, and everywhere, is that we're going to we, we have to go for kind of a cheaper solutions. And if you go for a cheaper solution in in school metrics or learning metrics, 
bad things is uh, going to happen. So, so honestly, I do not think that this well-being and and health um, narrative that we now have, uh, thankfully, in taking place in many countries, will eventually um, see the light in reality as 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 we hope. Simply not because we people don't think that it's a good thing to do, but simply because in most education systems there are there are more important things to do. Um, than that, and that, that you know, the cheaper way is always to do what we have uh, done before. Mm. I mean, that, that's not that's not a bleak assessment, but it, it's sort of a quite a, a sort of clear-headed one, isn't it? Of saying, I think you know, things will maintain the status quo will come back in in that regard. I mean, Professor Hargreaves, do you sort of have that same view, or do you have a more sense that maybe there will be any change? Uh, I'm a bit more optimistic than uh, Pauzi, not necessarily in general, but. But on this particular issue, it's because you're in Canada. I'm in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but switch the seasons around, and the reverse situation applies. They, they. Uh, so if if you look during the pandemic, um, hard, hardly anybody. But people have missed so many things. They've they've missed their friends. They've uh, they've that they've missed the teachers. They've they've missed playing out um they've they've missed loads of things um but nobody's really missed the testing you you haven't seen uh uh, i mean amongst a few politicians and testing or related organizations you've seen well we need the test to check whether there's any loss of learning and and uh which is a ridiculous argument actually when we get refugees coming into Canada and same as many other countries who've missed schooling for for three years and have five different incidences of post-traumatic stress you don't begin by saying right where's the benchmark of everybody else where are they in relation to this benchmark how do we catch them up no you take what's in front of you and and you work with them and move them forward as as well as you can so amongst the public there, there's very little appetite uh, for testing uh, the examinations is a bit more uh, a, a, a bit more tricky um, but but we're, we're also seeing where there's a stable government, a relatively stable government. So not England, uh, but say Scotland. I mean, that may change, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but, but, but at the moment, where there's a relatively stable government and people are not looking at the next set of metrics and the next election, uh, that then um, p- people have realised, you know, Maslow comes before Bloom. What well-being comes before comes before achievement. Uh, that that is absolutely palpable. Schools matter. Uh, t- teachers matter. Uh, we've had two years now in the UK without examinations in the traditional sense. We're in the twenty-first century. This is a 19th century technology. Actually, it was invented by the Chinese. It's a 15th century technology in the 21st century is an examination for a credential. And one of the benefits of technology now is is a real opportunity to transform how we think about moving from school into life after school, not as a one-time win-lose um, pass fail forever for most kids uh, situation, but 
but we can treat exams like a driving test that, that are perhaps the questions are problem-based, so the exam boards won't worry about running out of questions uh, and um, put them all online and sit them at different times until, until you've, you've met the standard, till you've, till you've qualified. And, and we can begin to collect much more easily in the way that art has done for years, uh, portfolios of, mm. of work that people can look at uh, when when people are applying. So, so I think where there's a stable government, not driven by the numbers for the next election, um, and Scotland for, for you is an example, possibly Wales as well, is um, the, uh, I think we're at a moment when there's huge potential to transform um, examinations at the end Uh, and also the accountability testing before that which Wales and Scotland don't really have now anyway but England does but for instance um, California's just abolished standardized achievement tests as a qualification for university and in all its in all its universities so Mm. I'm a bit more optimistic than Parsi in some countries Andy, can I can I just throw in a, a counter example? Just look at the United States. There, the the current president promised in a campaign to not to start these terminated standardized assessments, and he's gonna he's gonna continue the same regime as before, which is not indication of the policy and politics, but it's just an indication that it's not parents, it's not communities, it's yeah. not what we want in the United States and many other places, including here, is much more about, you know, those people who hold the power. And if you look yeah. at the, 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 those people in the United States and everywhere who have gained a lot during this last uh, 12 months in the COVID are the Gateses and, and Apples and others. And, you know, that's where the pressure comes. And that's yeah. why, that's that's the kind of a root of my um, pessimism, if you if you wish, to this, that it's, oh. it, it, the conversation is not what we want. It's you know what this big money and and wealthy foundations in the United States oh. and in England and and here want to do, and that what they want to do is exactly what they have been doing before. So so here's a prediction. I think you're right about the federal government, um, but I don't think you are. I mean, you are. It's a fact. So what I think about it is irrelevant. It's a it's a we live in a world where facts still matter. Um, but even under the old regime, you had one or two rebel states. You know, Vermont is one that that, that you and I know well, uh, California to some degree. And I think what you will find in the coming years is uh, the, the White House will still broadly have the same position. But I think you'll find more variation uh, amongst the states who are secure in, in kind of where they are and where they're headed. And in the UK, I think, uh, you know, Eng- England will still be the educational basket case that it has become in lots of ways uh, because it's always thinking about the next election. Um, but, uh, but I think Scotland and Wales have uh, real potential for transformation. Well, well I mean, see what happens after the elections there. Yeah. Scotland. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, like I said, I talk to a lot of international teachers all around the world and they there's a lot of talk about wanting exams to change and seeing this is the moment to, to have that. And, and you mentioned Over. portfolio and, and I could see, and Paxi, I could see you sort of nodding in agreement when Andy said that about this idea of maybe a more portfolio-based assessment system could be created. I don't know, I mean, do you want to come at that? What, what, from Singapore, like, what do you see on this? Do you think assessment can change or is it, is it sort of too entrenched and there's too much you know, big money and big power behind it to allow it to change? Okay, so <clears throat> Pazi said that 
Andy's view is because Andy is in Canada and his view is because he's in Australia right now. And so I'm in Singapore. So I do not represent anybody on this globe except to say that I'm Singaporean and I'm kind of in some ways very glad that Singapore has taken a position uh, that exams are still important, but it's not everything. I think that's the main thing. Now, firstly, we have to, 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 to understand Singapore has always been kind of big on exams. We're such a society. But we are acknowledging this issue, not hiding this away, but we're trying to shift the focus from quantity to quality, by which we mean this obsession with key performance indicators, examination results, et cetera. Let's shift that focus away from those to quality, by which we mean that students actually engaged they are actually engaged in learning they love learning they appreciate what they are learning rather than just simply driven by exams and could do well in examinations so the idea behind it is such that yes we are shifting exams but in a slow manner okay that is to say we have this idea of portfolio project work, and that has been for many years. Mm. It's already implemented. But the idea is still that so long as there are these examinations and the culture is such that people are concerned about these, meaning that they are very, very uh, concerned to do well in these examinations, what we actually can do is this, is to build pathways so that different children can find success in their own ways. That is to say, in the past, the pathways have been more or less these, but that's also a matter of the developmental trajectory of Singapore. In the past, that was the case. And that's simply because we just had our independence not too long ago and, you know, the usual more standardized ways of doing things. Now we are at a slightly different developmental stage. Therefore, we are saying that we now have the economic conditions to have a lot more different types of pathways so that children with different aptitudes, with different strengths could find their own success in their own way. Now, the success is not all going to be equal. We won't promise that, but it will be something that the children will be motivated about and will be proud of, and they will get a good living and and they will become good people. That's what we hope for. And that's what we have done about examinations. That's what we think right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, a, a good sort of spread of answers there. And I, I feel like, you know, given this, the, the pandemic has sort of accelerated these conversations or, or made them happen if they were never there before. I mean, I don't know if any of you want to comment on that. I mean, do you think, is this, is it a good thing though, that we're talking about assessment like this, or is this, is this sort of masking a bigger problem? You know, is there, is there more fundamental things we should be talking about around where education goes after the pandemic? Is it, is technology and how we use technology the more important conversation and the exams thing is a sort of a red herring almost that sort of is interesting because of it's the novel fact we haven't had exams for two years. I mean, Andy, you touched on that and Passy, you did too about technology and it mustn't be used as a means to sort of burden teachers with more things to do. No, I, I think that this assessment and testing conversation or debate is critically important but it should not be a debate about uh, either or or as it is often that let's just abolish all the testing and evaluations and, you know, let the teachers teach what they do. 
you know, we need we need information and understanding of you know how the systems education systems are performing more than ever before. But I I think the conversations should be more about what type of assessment systems different countries and systems do need in order to be able to answer these questions. And I I think that the the question really to the government should be that what is the absolute necessary minimum amount of information that they need to be held accountable for what what they do. Mm. But now my concern is that this, this whole conversation about new metrics and assessments is just going to do exactly the opposite that you know how much data and information we are able to collect using all kinds of different methods of assessments and testing and and if we do that then of course the, the, this whole whole thing will go uh, go wrong way but i i think you know people like us we have to remind uh, those who are in 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 this debate about uh, the role of assessments and and testing and examinations as well is that we need data we need information but what is a kind of a smart way to do things in a different ways that we have done before. And that should be the kind of a key in this conversation we have. Mm. And Andy, do you, do you want to add, Andy, you're, you're on mute. Sorry, you can add on that. Oh, uh, uh, Palsy and I am possibly back to you as well. Look, we love metrics. So so when, 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 when Finland is top of anything, or indeed top of everything, when it's, when it's the happiest country in the world, who's the first person on Twitter to celebrate it? Palsy Selberg. When Finland is the least corrupt country in, in the world or one of the least corrupt, who's the first person to go and celebrate it? Palsy Selberg. When Finland topped the PISA scores, who was one of the first people to go and celebrate it? Palsy Selberg. And if ever I get a remote slim chance to say, actually, this year Canada did better than Finland on something, then I'll be the first to go and celebrate that as well. So, so we we love metrics when we think the metrics actually say something of of value, and of course we celebrate them when they show us in a good light. Um, and we tend to say they're dodgy or they're flawed when 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 they don't. Um, the the thing about all those metrics, though, is is that they're all based on samples, uh, so they don't test the whole population. As as we've all said here, you've. If you want to test somebody's blood, you don't remove all the blood from their body. You take a sample of, of, of their blood. And uh, if you have a sample, it, it's not foolproof, but, but uh, because people now do prepare for PISA and so on. So cheating and gaming the system is, is starting to take place. But, but it reduces the likelihood that people are driven in order in order to gain the system. The the problem is is since about since the late 1990s, a lot of countries, including England, uh, took assessments that were used for other purposes, uh, like the GCSEs, for example, in England. They were a credential to see you know where you're going to go on a path towards university or or not, uh, and and then they became used as an accountability mechanism. So five, five grade eight, you know, a, a, a star to C, and uh, and then the inspectors decide are you a failing school or not on the basis of it, and and that was the point at which uh, so much negative energy became expended or diverted 
to figuring out how you could get your five A to C. So people figured out, well, we could do it without English and maths. We could have like a tech qualification or something else. And, and then the government did away with that and, you know, established new criteria. And so all this energy goes into gaming the system. So metrics are not a bad thing, providing they reflect what we value truly reflect what we value rather than us valuing what we can easily measure. And and provided that they're done in a way that doesn't lead people to um, concentrate all their energy on how they can get the metrics up rather than improving the quality of what they're providing for the kids. Mm. Well, I I I think we're seeing here how assessment is such a sort of, it can be such a sort of hot potato as a topic and and the pandemic has probably only increased that and we'll be interesting to see what changes from there. Let's move to a different area then um, and talk a little bit about technology, which obviously has been another massive topic of the, of the pandemic. Uh, Pakti, why don't we start with you? Because one thing I'm interested in to think, talking about is, I've been talking to a lot of international teachers and leaders about this currently, is that the pandemic has really shown how you can use technology in new ways, like it was enforced upon us, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, they had to do it. But from that, no one's then suggesting necessarily that all school will be remote forever, quite the opposite, everyone knows how important it is to be in school. But are you seeing, do you think there will be a sort of a new, you know, will there be a pre and post pandemic, a clear divide in the technology that we can use to inform teaching, to make teaching better, whether that's for monitoring the pupil's progress or just for delivering a better lesson, we're going to see a huge generation of teachers now skilled in using technology, and that and that can only be a good thing. Is that fair to say? Okay. Um, <clears throat> whether that is a good thing, it is really up to us to make it a good thing. That is to say, what we are seeing in Singapore and hoping to do is this. Given the pandemic, the silver lining, a few things, one of which would be that teachers are now much more competent in using online learning tools. Now, the next step is this. How can we capitalize on this opportunity? Technology is good news. But in the hands of a very good teacher, a very skillful teacher, then that tool will come alive. Technology has a way of empowering learners. For example, what is happening right now is precisely this. If not for technology, how could we ever have an interview that crossed so many different Mm. continents? So it allows teaching and learning to take place kind of the the usual way of saying it, anytime, anywhere, they can revise uh, the lessons again and again or to look at a demonstration and again and again and things like that. Or they can facilitate you know uh, students to to have conversations you know amongst themselves and all the time chat rooms and so on and for some who are more shy to speak up they could type and and so on and so forth so those are good things the main thing is this we need to make sure that we are progressing in the right direction we have to have the right spirit to say let's make it a good thing have the right spirit and have the wisdom to make it a good thing mm. so the the, the, the funding, the, the investment in professional development to make sure that the professional capital of our teaching profession is actually enhanced to be able to capitalize on such opportunities in a good way to make sure that children actually learn better, not worse. Mm-hmm. So certain things should go this way and certain things should not. 
And actually, this links with, with even the, the issue that we talked about just now, which is about assessment, because now there is the opportunity that certain things could be done online, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that that is good or bad. I'm saying that actually it's up to us to make it good. That is the point. It is actually human rather than we succumbing or driven by technology, we should be masters of technology to make it work for us. So just now on that, that note of uh, assessment, just a quick remark. I think assessments, nothing actually very wrong with assessment in the way we do need them. The main thing or a few things that we should be a, a lot more concerned with is that what is that assessment for? For example, there is a big difference, you know, the usual way of saying it, there's a big difference between evidence-informed decision-making versus decision-based evidence-gathering. So someone has already made up your mind what you're going to do, and you can always find the right matrix to prove your point. Mm. It all depends on how you want to design it. Okay? So, but what we are saying, or, or at least worldwide, what I'm saying is that the center of gravity is too much on one side. Are the assessments really for students to, to help them in their learning? Is the assessment merely for, inverted commas, accountability, whatever that is to mean, or to show people that what a great education system we have, or to show people that you know, achievement gaps have been bridged or, 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 or closed? Or, or What are we using assessments for? Mm. The main thing is, is that for the children? Because if it is used for the children, one, in a formative manner to help them in their learning as feedback to help them in the learning, that at even policy level, that it actually helps policymakers with the right thinking, the right spirit and wisdom to make better pathways for children to advance. Mm. Then I say, what is wrong with assessment? Good, we should have some. The main thing is, what is the spirit and who is it for? Yeah. Well, there's one thing I'd, I'd like to come back just briefly on what you were talking about there, which is talking about technology and how we can make sure it's the good, you know, used for the good of education. I mean, how do we do that, though? Is that going to be come down to researchers and academics to actually then sort of identify well, what are the technologies that help improve outcomes, whether that's through assessment or whether it's through other metrics? You know, again, it's <laughs> you pull the string on this thing and it, it never stops, does it? But you know, how do we now go, right, we've been through a pandemic, we've grappled and quickly adapted new ways of working. But now we step back and we say, well, what actually works? What doesn't? What looks like it works, but doesn't? You know, is that just going to take some time to research and actually understand? Well, a quick response. So researchers, but teachers as well. Trust the teachers. Give them the time and space. Think what worked, what did not quite work, what could have worked better. There's a lot that, you know, given the time and space and the trust, teachers can come out with and we'll do much better in education when there is a real engagement. Teachers, policymakers, researchers, everybody concerned and interested in education and in the next generation. Mm. Okay. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think, Dan, that um, we've approached technology through a framework of disruptive innovation, which has become a very um, popular phrase based mm. on Clayton Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma. And disruptive innovation says, look, everything's a mess. We need to, we need just to put something in that will shake it up and turn it upside down. 
And uh, that's happened in a few places in business. Uh, actually, the swipe screen compared to the Nokia, um, the uh, Nokia using your thumbs is an example of that. And it might work in business, but it's a terrible thing to use in education because while you're trying to get on top of it, and we've seen this in school districts, uh, people have said for a year or two years there was absolute chaos when people just like threw in the devices, people had no idea what to do with them or they use them, they use them badly. What, what a lot of industry uses is what's called disciplined innovation. And so when Dyson invented the Dyson, uh, rather than the vacuum cleaner, it, it had over 4,000 prototypes before it went to market because they didn't want a Dyson going to market that threw dust in people's faces or, or, or poisoned them or killed them or whatever it might be. So that kind of innovation is pretty sensible, which is you don't let everybody use it until we know it's safe and it, and it does the job. Um, our attitude to technology should be exactly the same, which is... Uh, in general, in research, but also through inquiry in your own school, for uh, figure out for first of all in one subject rather than all subjects, or in 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 one year level rather than all year levels, or for some of the time, not all of the time. Some of the kids, not all of the kids. Try out: is it working? What what's the impact? How do we know? If it looks like it's working, then spread it out and have it affect have it affect more kids. Mm. So, so you know, technology and innovation, but. A very good thing. I'll in um, in four hours from now, I'll be joining my three grandchildren in virtual school, mm. and um, and my eight year old grandson uh, loves coding. Uh, big at eight years old, he's coding, and he codes his own video game, and then he shares that with the other kids. And the fantastic thing is, is that puts him on the same level as an adult in terms of how it looks. Mm. Like the game looks like an adult created it. And, and then, but he also loves digging up worms out, outside. And the wonderful thing about digging up worms is it reduces the adult to the level, it, you can't be more grown up about digging up worms than a child is. So again, it, it kind of moves you to the same kind of level. Both these things are important. And teachers need to be able to do, of eight-year-olds, need to know when they go into the woods, what the plants are, what the creatures are, how you investigate, how you share these with the kids. And when they're online, they need to know how to code, uh, how, to, how, how to help set a child up to do it. They need to be able to do both and know when each of them matters and is important and has an impact. Mm. Can I just add one one thing? We uh, previously spoke about the, the the question of whether the, the hybrid um, model of schooling will be considered after this pandemic, meaning that the there's a kind of a blended system of uh, of uh, in person teaching and learning, and then then the computers. I think you know one way to see this is that we actually have had the hybrid learning system for a while in in um, you know most of our societies. In England, in Australia, in Canada, in Finland, and most other countries, children actually, teenagers, they spend more time with their technology, with their smartphones and other gadgets than they spend in school. And they learn, they often learn more interesting and and, and important and exciting things uh, without the school, uh, you, you know, using, using these uh, gadgets that they have. Yeah. So 
so the question is really about framing this whole way of thinking is that, you know, do we value those things that they learn uh, when they're by themselves? Um, and should we actually think about the time when the kids are in school, uh, mostly spent without the technology, you know, learning all those things that Andy was talking about, you know, digging, digging worms and, um, you know, learning outside this, you know, in a forest and yeah. learning with the people. So it's an equally possible way to see the, the, you know, the future of schooling in that way, that when the kids, everybody basically have their gadgets and, and they, they are filled with this technology, um, that the school is the place where learning, teaching and learning happens in a different way. Mm -hmm. I'm leading a, a large research project here in Australia called Growing Up Digital Australia, where we're just finishing the the, the second phase, the large phase national survey, most of the parents here, according to our data here, most of the Australian parents actually expect that their children should do less or no technology in the school, um, uh, particularly after this pandemic thing. So, so they, yeah, sorry, so they want they expect less less technology. Yeah. So, yeah, so what the pandemic. pandemic is, yeah, what the pandemic has done, according to our data here, is that that many parents and grandparents they have changed their views, perceptions of technology, and and many of them towards the idea that because the kids are already spending, you know, hours uh, and hours and hours, you know, ten hours is a, is a, is a not uncommon in the teenagers' lives daily with with their gadgets and mm. technologies. That these parents are saying that you know enough is enough. And now when you go to school for five hours or six hours a day, uh, you should do something without computers, without your gadgets, you know, just do these things. You, you know, part of the evidence to this argument, uh, argument comes from a kind of a simple thought experiment that just go anywhere in the world where you have a, a kind of a concentration of high-tech companies like Silicon Valley in the United States. And, and, and take a look at where the, where the people who work with this uh, kind of a top-notch uh, high-tech companies like like YouTube and Google and Apple and Microsoft, where do the people send their kids? I'm not talking about the uh, blue-collar workers there, but you know those people who design and, and develop these things. They go to Montessori and, and, and Waldorf schools and, and nature schools and you name it. <laughs> and the question is that, you know, why do, and they have done it already for a while, that why do these people send their own children to schools where there's no iPads and, and computers anywhere near? Um, and so, so, you know, this, this whole question of future, what type of future do we want, is a very curious one, particularly now when we are coming out of this uh, pandemic experience where the computers have, and this online remote learning has been so concrete and visible experience for many parents. I would like to see actually more research and evidence globally how parents and grandparents see their own children's life and learning uh, during and after this pandemic, rather than more research about the, what works in a classroom with the iPad or the computer. It's, it's a very interesting point, that, isn't it? And you're absolutely right. And you can understand why parents might look at that and think, oh, time in school, thankfully, is a time away from gadgets and gizmos and screens. And yet we've just been through something which potentially is only going to increase them in school because teachers may feel empowered now to use more tech or they may they may see better ways of working. I mean, I've spoken to lots of teachers who have said Google Classroom is something they never really, they had it, but they never really used it. They didn't know how to use it or they, they barely used it. And now they love it and they track, you can track homework progression. The parents find it easy to, to help, you know, see how their children are doing on the homework and so forth. So you're going to get that interesting divide then of maybe people who, like you say, back off from technology at a time when schools are saying, 
oh, we're going to use more technology because we're good at it now and we know what we're doing. And teachers kind of feel, oh, I love it because it reduces marking or my feedback's improved because I can do audio feedback now. And that's, again, something that's come up. So that's, I'm not, there's not really a question now. I just think that's a very interesting dy- dynamic that might play out in uh, people being wary of technology, but actually we might see more of it in school. Or maybe we won't. Maybe, to sort of back to his point, that this, this idea that there'll be a sort of, we work out what's good and we get rid of the stuff that we picked up in the pandemic you know, we had to try things out. There was no time to research it. It was just throw things at the wall and see what works. And then over time, we just keep the things that work. If, if we sort of move towards a, a wrap-up, because I'm conscious of time and, and how long you've already been talking on screens as well. Um, if we were to have this conversation in, in one year's time, say, or maybe five years' time, is there anything, though, that, that particularly that you would like to think will have changed or will have been adapted or modified that we'll have learned, whether it's from the pandemic or not? I don't know if there was any pre-pandemic uh, you know, trend, trends that were taking place that you were interested in or thinking were, were good. Uh, in past few years, is there anything, I appreciate it's a very crystal ball gazing kind of question, but you know, is there anything that you're kind of just, you'd hope or quietly confident you see, you think in a year we might see education having continued to evolve and improve in any particular area? Yeah, you know, I, I would hope, and you know, this is a very personal thing because I have uh, two two of my my boys are in a, in a primary early years in a primary school here, so it's it's a very practical thing as well. Mm. So, you know, if you put it in a kind of a personal way, that what would I like to see happening to my own own boys, my own children uh, in in school here or wherever they end up, you know, continuing education? I would say that, you know, if the school system, if the kind of a mentality would be more based on you know, driven by this question, uh, not not the question that, you know, how good is my son in the school? Um, because, you know, that's what occupies 80% of the parents uh, here and in many other uh, other places is occupied by this question of how good is my son compared to other kids and other schools and other countries? You know, if the, the question would be twisted just a little bit and the question would be that how is my son good in school? That would be a revolution uh, for me. That would be enough for me to be confident that, you know, my, my own children would be just doing fine in the school. If the school would be, and the system would be seriously, you know, asking this question that how are my children good in the school where they go? Because it would mean changing the, the kind of a, the way we look at the kids' performance in the school towards, mm. you know, helping them to do the things that they want to do and the things that they love to do mm. and, and, you know, where their passion is, rather than insisting that they have to learn the same things in the same way at the same time like everybody else. Mm. And that would, be the, that would be the huge paradigm shift that would change, you know, many of these other things that we have been talking about. So I wouldn't be asking nothing but change the order of two words in this sentence. How is my how good is my son to how is my son good in a school? Yeah. And I would be a happy father. <laughs> That's a very nice way of putting it. Um, uh, and Andy, what about you on that question of you know one year's time? Where would we like to be? Well, I, I think before the pandemic, well-being was the handmaiden of learning. So schools were driven by learning and by the evidence of learning and the evidence of impacts. There was this kind of hatty mentality to to uh but you know what would my, what 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 had the highest effect sizes that would enhance learning and well-being was seen as you know safety and security no bullying that that would help all that during the pandemic we've figured out i think take away learning it's a shame 
It's a shame when you take away learning. Take away well-being, it's a disaster. Mm. And uh, mental health problems amongst young children and teenagers have been enormous. And I think the consequences of this will be definitely twofold. And there's an opportunity for a third. One is... One is just a renewed belief in the importance of schools, physical schools, places for people to go, meet their friends, develop their identity, figure out what their purpose is, where they're headed in life, look at um, uh, racism and prejudice, especially when they come from families that are racist and prejudiced. So so I think rebelieving in just how important physical schools as communities are um, and then understanding that well-being and learning are preconditions for each other it, it's not that one is the big thing mm. and and the other is the sidekick but but rather you really can't have either without without the other in schools and immediately when people go back uh, obviously, there'll need to be more attention to almost certainly to counselling, to mental health support, uh, to uh, special educational needs uh, support. Uh, so there'll be a, a, a very short term need of increased investments at the lower levels of Maslow's needs hierarchy, safety, security and so on. The opportunity is once we've established that that exactly as Pazzi was saying, that the priority should be schools to be places where children feel they're thriving, that they have a sense of purpose, they're achieving something, they're developing senses of mastery in things that are uh, truly in, important to them. They discover new interests as well as following their existing uh, interests and, and that this, this thriving and, and joyful connection with with learning and with school is is the big opportunity for us in the next five years i think yeah no again a very nice answer as well and i think one that again i would definitely think a lot of international school leaders that i speak to i think that's playing out i think there's that awareness belief and, and among parents too perhaps like you said seeing what teachers do and seeing the importance of their connection to their pupil their classmates their teacher right. and it's not just learning and that's it there's, there's so right. much more to school um, and, and, and Pakti, finally, you know, you get the honour of, of finishing the, the session. Uh, where would you like to see us in a year or, or indeed five years, you know, to Andy's sort of point there as well? Okay, so I do not know what will happen in five years. But <laughs> at least this is what I hope to see. Yeah. One, the more we emphasise the use of computers, the more we appreciate the human teacher. Two, the more that we and, of course, children spend time glued to the screen, the more we appreciate time away from the screen. Appreciation for nature, appreciation for time to play, appreciation for the arts, music, sports, a higher appreciation for time away from screen. Third, well-being. Higher appreciation for the well-being of people, students, and teachers. But that well-being is not just about, for example, that we should take care, of course, of the people in poverty or of the students who, are, who are, have, say, 
emotional problems, mental health, etc. All these are given, all right? They are all very important aspects of well-being. However, one very major aspect, teaching and learning. Good lessons is well-being. Imagine if I were a kid and I have to be in the classroom and all the time from early in the morning till sometime in the afternoon, I'm bored to death, sitting down there, just hoping to get out of the classroom because I'm bored to death. My being is not well. Mm. Therefore, well-being is not just about taking care of the poor, making sure we bridge the digital divide. All these are very important, mental health, everything. But the more we talk about well-being, the more we should appreciate and encourage teachers and students. Good lessons, engage learning. That is part of well-being. You, your being is well. If you feel that you spend a day in school, highly engaged, very fruitful, Today, I learned some really good things. Mm. Yeah. That's what I, what I hope to see. Yeah. Well, that, that's a lovely answer too. And it's so interesting that all those answers were, were, were so much about the, the sort of fundamentals of being human, of being of being connected to other people, of, of being, like you say, being well. They weren't about, oh, let's have the best testing system. Let's have, you know, uh, the most efficient output on, on, the, on our assessment. It was about the people. It was about the children. It was about community. And I think that really is such a sort of telling thing that that's what we've, we already, we all knew that's what school was about, what education was about, but maybe it took the pandemic to sort of really re- remind us just how important that is. So if we're trying to end on that sort of positive, upbeat view for the future, I think that's the nice thing to do. So I'll wrap up there. So thank you, Patsy, uh, Patsy and Andy, so, so much. That was such a great conversation. I think people listening to that have really got something out of that and food for thought so so thank you again and um, well let's meet up in a year and see what came true